0: Um, I'd like for you, if you would, to turn with me to the 62nd Psalm, Psalm 62. I'm glad that you're here to be a part of the evening service. It's good always to come back to be with you guys and to worship with you again. I'm glad that we get this privilege. Hope you've had a good day, good Lord's Day, and that uh, the upcoming week, I pray that it'll be a blessing to you. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you to Hoover. This evening, and uh, we, we hope tonight has been and will be um, some, some sort of a blessing from God for you as you face the upcoming week and face whatever challenges that you're, you're dealing with. know I've had folks who have said, and some of you have said something like this, um, I know, but I've heard, I've heard people say this often after going through some sort of a difficult time, some, I don't know, health, health crisis or Maybe loss of a loved one or dealing with a child or a crisis at work or a time of financial uncertainty, whatever it is, you know, a million different versions of it. But I've heard people say after having come through it, talking about people of faith, I've heard people say after coming through it, something like this, I learned during that time that God was always there, that it was always there. I learned during that time to, 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 tr- to trust, to, I grew closer to Him. I've, you know, I've heard people say that many times. I know that's not always the case. I mean, people don't always come out with that experience. I know of people who've lost their faith because of the crisis. So I'm not saying that that is across the board the response that every person experiences sometimes people lose their faith because they, they blame God or or whatever the case is. But but for people of faith, generally speaking, my experience has been in talking to people is that they, they come through it on the other side and they and they're almost surprised at where God is and how he, he walked with them and they felt his presence throughout. I think that's what Psalm sixty two is getting at. This is a different a little bit of a different kind of psalm. You know you've got different ones. You've got those imprecatory psalms where he's angry, he's he's mad at what the psalmist is and he he wants God to do something drastic to one of His enemies or something. You've got psalms of praise where He simply praises the Lord uh, in some sort of beautiful way and probably meant by, to you to be used by ancient Israel as they approach the temple to worship. A different one. This one is a, is a psalm of confidence. It's, a, it's just got a, a kind of a quiet, comforting tone throughout. It's got 12 verses. And... As we walk through it together tonight, I, I, what, my goal for you, I hope my goal is the same as what the psalmist's goal was for his people, and I think it was this. He wants his people to trust in God to have this kind of confidence in him that no matter what happens, he's always going to be there. That's kind of the tone of the psalm. We'll take it in steps. There are three sections here ending with that musical note or whatever it meant to the ancient people and I'm not sure, Selah, you'll notice it in your text, not meant to be read aloud but nonetheless, often it marks a, some sort of a segue in the text it's at the end of verse 4 see it, at the end of verse 8 and then, and then it closes out the psalm or you don't have the musical note at the end of this but Psalm 62 Let's, I'll tell you what I want to do, I want to just read all 12 verses get it out in front of you lay it out there and then we'll, we'll go back through this is a beautiful thing and It'll have some phrases that you're familiar with, I think. Psalm 62. Let's follow along, if you would, as I read it for us all. For God alone, my soul, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, there together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Psalm. 62, 1 through 12. Okay, so here's, here's, I think, what he's getting at. And I, I hope you get a kind of a sense. You, you notice he's, he's directing some thoughts at someone who's causing him some problems. But that's not the main thrust of this. I want to point out a couple of things that don't come through when you just read it once or twice. And you probably don't notice them unless you read it a bunch of times in succession. And especially when you look at some of this and some commentaries help me to, to see this that you wouldn't notice in English. But if you are a Bible marking kind of person I want you to do something there's this word that Hebrew scholars tell us is a clue to this text to this entire psalm and it's two letters in Hebrew <clears throat> it's translated pretty consistently in this psalm not not always the same now I'm, I'm going to point them out to you in case you want to circle them but this is a it's a it's a word that can be translated different ways and and it'll, it'll change the way you read it if you hear it. If you hear this note in it, but it it can be translated with a word like nevertheless. It, it it's kind of like a hesitation. It's it's a statement of confidence over against something that that might make you think he doesn't have that reason to be confident. So it's I don't know how to put it in words, but I I think what he's getting at is that when he uses this word six times in the psalm, it's it's. Meant to communicate this tone of, this is true, we know it to be true, even though you guys might have experiences that make you doubt that. I know it to be true because of my experiences. Something like that. And the word is translated alone, more often than not, in this psalm. Let me just go ahead and point them out to you, and then I'm going to make a couple of observations about it. Look, look at this. All right, Psalm 62.1. And you're not going to get anything out of this if you're not looking at a Bible somewhere on your phone or... Um, Paper and ink Bible. Alright, look at this. Psalm 62, one. For God alone. There's the first time. For God alone. But the word doesn't just mean alone. I and mean, it's not it's not a word that means like only God. I mean, I think that's what he ultimately means here, but it's it's this note of you would if you read this in Hebrew, Hebrew scholars tell us, if you read this in the original, you would think that he's he's saying My God alone, even though this experience that I've just had might make some people doubt that. My God alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. As if the situation right now might be slightly different than it was a few days ago. So it presupposes some sort of experience that he's just had that makes this a statement of of emphasis over against the backdrop of something that just happened. Does that make sense at all? So it's the word translated alone, or, or if you put it like, my, for God, um, nevertheless, nevertheless, for God my soul waits in silence. If you read it like that, it's just a different kind of note, isn't it? For God alone my soul waits in silence. For God, nevertheless, my soul waits in silence. So that nevertheless there, that only there suggest to you that something has happened, right? Leading scholars to speculate. What's this psalm about? What's, what's that? We have no way of knowing because we don't have a context. The superscript says that it was a psalm of David, but nobody knows if that's right or not. That wasn't put there by an inspired person. It was put there by a scribe at some point after the time. And for some reason, he said it was, it was David's. It could have been David's, but we don't know. We don't know the setting. So you've got this little word there that's pretty... Pretty important, especially when it's used six times. So there's the first one. For God alone, or for God, nevertheless, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He, here it is again, alone is my rock and my salvation. Nevertheless, he's my rock and my salvation. See that, that, that kind of note? My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Then down to verse 4. They only, talking about some sort of enemies, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. So these, these evil people are battering this person of God. And then in verses 5 and 6, you'll notice that they are repetition almost verbatim. A couple of different differences, but similar to verses 1 and 2. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Then verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. And then the last time is in verse 9, and it's translated completely differently here. Those of low estate are but, B U T is the word that's used the sixth time. Those of low estate are but a breath, or nevertheless a breath. They, they're, they're, they're there, but they're only a breath. They're, they're nothing more than a, than a breath. So, the first thing I wanted you to notice about this psalm is that's why I started it out with that illustration of people expressing confidence in God in spite of the fact that they've just gone through something bad. And I think that kind of that kind of surprises the world when the world looks at maybe you've been through some maybe you've lost a loved one maybe you've you've gone through uh, you know you've gone through a health crisis that's, that's gone on for some time and and your attitude is one of confidence your attitude is and i could I could name you know you you and I've been a part of this church for a while we could we could name specific people I could name specific people in this room right now who have been through stuff and and your attitude on this side of it, maybe you're not completely on the side of it yet, but but your attitude on the on the downward slope of it maybe is. God is God is real. He's there, and He was there the whole time. See, the world looks at that and is is, is amazed by that. I mean, they look at that and they say, "How can you do, How can you have that kind of attitude?" I think that's kind of reflected in this psalm. For God, nevertheless, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my myself. I've still got confidence in him in spite of what's going on. So maybe, maybe this is one of the points of the psalm that he wanted you and me to get. When you go through a tough time, if you hold on to your faith in God, you're going to come through it and you're going to, people are going to be surprised by your faith. Some people are who don't know God. They're going to be surprised. And so when that time comes... Hold on to your faith. God will be with you throughout it all. Uh, Even when you have reasons to... Even when some people might look at a situation and think, why don't you just give up on your faith in God completely? Isn't that what Job's wife wanted him to do? Look, Job. Just give it up, man. Just give it up. Job says, how can I do that? I I can't do that. See, people who who don't trust in God don't, don't have that kind of attitude. So throughout this psalm, there's that tension, that note of tension, I am gonna, uh, I'm, I'm waiting on God, even in the face of this, and maybe he wasn't through the crisis, and because of the way that he talks about the enemies, you, he might very well be in the middle of it, he might not be on the other side of it, he may be in the middle of it, and he says, nevertheless, no matter what happens, nevertheless, these people may do what they do, but, but I'm, I'm waiting on God, I'm waiting on God. So that kind of note permeates this whole psalm that it's this, uh, this, this struggle. Most scholars think of it as a previous struggle. I'm not convinced it's necessarily a previous one. I, I tend to read this psalm and think he's either, maybe he's just finished it, or maybe he's, he's still not quite through it. Maybe he's just on the, on the, on the end of it. I, I don't know. But it indicates some sort of a struggle, and he is expressing his confidence in God. I love the way that he expresses this. One scholar says this, this six-fold use of that word that I was telling you about, indicates that the statements which they introduce do not come naturally or easily. Think about that for a second. This word, the way it's used here, suggests that the statements which they introduce do not come naturally or easily. And I went through, I don't know Hebrew well at all, but I went through my uh, my Hebrew interlinear, which puts the, the Hebrew... You can get them for New Testament as well, the Greek. And it'll put the Hebrew there, and then directly under it, it'll put the literal translation into English. You know, if you've got a, you can get them in print, but most computer software programs have them now. And so it kind of struck me as I was doing it, because I was looking for that word and trying to figure out what the significance of it is and why the Reikens such a big deal out of it. And so in the Hebrew interlinear, it was always the first word. So it's got this little two-letter word that started out verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 9. I'm not, I don't, I'm not for sure about verse 9, but I know the first, first five of the usages. It's, it's looking at the Hebrew text. It's the very first word. And so the scholars are saying it indicates that the statements which they introduce do not come naturally or easily. And I thought that's interesting. So just read verse 1 like this. For God, leave, leave out the word because it's indicating something about the way to read the verse. For God, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. But the presence of that word indicates that that confident statement doesn't come about naturally or easily. Then read verse 2. He is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. But if they're right on that, then I make that statement... And that statement does not come naturally or easily in view of something I've just been through. You see that? Same thing in verses five and six. For God, O my soul, wait in silence. My hope is from him. He is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And I shall not be shaken. So these are statements of confidence that are rendered, uh, statements of confidence that, that, are, that are there in spite of circumstances that might indicate uh, naturally uh, that might indicate you you would have a different response apart from God's intervention. I feel like I'm jumbling that up but I hope you get the sense of that because I think that's a pretty neat thing because I struggle with that and I'm guessing you struggle with it too. You go through a hard time and you you read a psalm like this maybe and or uh, many psalms for God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. Well, I want to believe that, and I do believe it, but I'm struggling with it a little bit, quite honestly. You had your moments where you struggle with it, or or he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And you believe that intellectually, and you believe it emotionally, for the most part, maybe, 70% emotionally, but but there's something going on, and, and so you you struggle with that. Well, This psalmist was writing this in that kind of setting. He was making these statements of confidence in God. Those statements of confidence weren't coming naturally or easily, and that's why he's got that little word there that kind of sets the tone for the entire psalm. So I think that's a pretty neat thing about about the entire psalm is is to read it that way because it helps us to reflect on our own struggles when we have confidence, so maybe we pray. You ever prayed a prayer that you didn't fully believe? Like you're going through something really, really hard, and you say, "Lord, I trust in you fully and completely, and I turn this all over to you." You ever prayed that prayer? And then you worry about it all night. You ever done that? Were you lying when you prayed the prayer? I don't think you were lying, but you you express confidence in God. It's trust in God, even though you're a human being, a fallible human being, who's got some human struggles that are holding you back a little bit. And if I may refer back to Genesis 15 from our study this morning, when Abram's having this dialogue with God, and he says, you know, I don't have a son, and you promised me multitudes of descendants. And God says, look at the stars. Can you count the stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham, well, the text says in verse 6, and he believed God, and God credited it to him for righteousness. Did Abraham always believe God? He had his moments, didn't he? I mean, you can look at the life of Abraham, and he's a man of faith, and um, he's, he's one of the Bible's heroes, but you look at the life of Abraham, and yeah, he trusted in God, and ultimately God, God blessed him and took care of him and all that, but, you know, you you got the whole Ishmael story, Right? Remember that story? Hagar and Ishmael, got that? You got, these, you got these moments of doubt. You got Sarah laughing about the promise that God makes when, when Isaac is going to be born the next year. So you've got these moments of struggle, and yet Abraham is a man of faith. He believed God, and God credited it to him for righteousness. I'm not encouraging you to go out and just talk about your doubts all the time, but I want you to see that it's a natural thing for, me, for a human being to express confidence in God that doesn't come naturally easily. There are going to be those times. That doesn't mean you're unspiritual and it doesn't mean you're faithless and it doesn't mean you're a bad person or a bad Christian. It means you're a human being. That's what the psalmist is doing here. For God, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation in spite of the fact that I've just gone through something that I don't understand. You believe God and God credits it to you for righteousness. So you trust in him. God blesses you. Even though in your humanity, your trust, depending on your spirit, depending on your day, depending on lots of things in your body, in your life, that confidence is going to waver sometimes. But God credits Credits faith to you for righteousness. And then that beautiful statement of verse 2. He, he's my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. At the end of that, I shall not be greatly shaken He puts the word greatly in there, meaning I might be shaken. Um, See, I might be shaken, but I think one translation puts it, but I will not be greatly moved. It may get me. It may hit me pretty hard, but it's not going to move me away from God. Now, the, the expression down in verse... Six is different. There's no greatly there. There's no adverb there. He says in verse six, it's a, a stronger statement. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So it's a stronger statement there. He, so in verses one and two, he's, th- these are expressions of um, affirmation of trust in God. Verses three and four, he talks about enemies, whoever these people are. They're attacking verbally they are battering him like a battering ram. They're battering against the wall. The wall is leaning, you know, the tottering fence. They're, they're trying to tr- thrust him down from his high position. They're lying. they bless blessed with their mouths. So they're using flattery, but inwardly they're cursing. So he's talking about these people. So in that kind of context, that's probably what's going on where he uses this word six times. This stuff's going on, but I'm trusting in God, even though I don't know why he's not just shutting these people up right now. But I'm trusting in him anyway. I'm trusting in him anyway. I will not be shaken no matter what these guys say, no matter what they do to me, no matter how many times they, they pound that battering ram into the wall, I am not going to let them move me away from God. It's just a statement of confidence. So verses 1 through 4, <clears throat> that's, that's really what he does. Statement of confidence, and then he talks about these other people. And then verses 5 through, uh, five through 8 Verses 5 and 8, 5 and 6, you notice a repetition of 1 and 2 for God alone. But notice the difference. Did you pick up on this? If you read a psalm repeatedly, this is a good way of reading your Bible, by the way. Uh, you read verses 1 through 12, and, and then you read them again, and, and a third time and a fourth time you'll start noticing things. Uh, I may have told you before, I had a professor in a graduate-level theology class, and it was on Genesis, and one of the assignments... I think I may have shared this, but you may have forgotten that I told you. So, uh, one of the things he asked us to do is in Genesis was he wanted us to read the creation account twenty times. And I thought, when I got that assignment, I thought that's that's silly because I've read it many times before. This is a graduate level class; you don't expect just to read. Genesis 1 and 2 20 times I didn't think it was that silly because I respected him but you know what I mean I was just like what? what's, the, what's the point of doing this but I started doing it and he wanted us to write I can't remember 5 questions or 10 questions about the text and so I read it the first time Genesis 1 and 2 and, and it was just kind of like what I expected I read this before second time third time fourth time, I don't remember at what point during the reading of the Genesis 1 and 2. I don't know if it was the 17th time or whenever it was, but I was I was amazed. And 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 from that time on, it was I was several years ago, from that time on, it's changed the way I study a text like this. The first thing I'm gonna do, and I I just I'm telling you this to urge you, if you're if you want to understand a text, my natural reaction oftentimes would be to read it once and then go, go, go uh, grab a commentary, you know, two or three commentaries and read what they wrote about it, help me understand it better. Now, the first step is to read it at least 20 times. And what you'll notice is the first few times you read it, you'll just think, I don't, I'm not getting anything out of it. But then things will start happening. Things will start, I don't know, it's this interesting thing. And I think it's what the Bible is talking about when it says meditate on the word, um, meditating on it is not just sitting there thinking about it. Uh, it's 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 reading it and letting it, kind of letting it consume you. I don't remember where, exactly where I was going with that. I think I think what point I was going to make by that is there's a slight change, which is an important change, when you read verses one and two and then you read five and six. Look look at it again, and you may not notice this the first time, but. Like verse one says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And then you you read on down, you get to verse six and you read, or verse five, you read, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. And when I read that the first time, I thought, well, that sounds a lot like verse one. I didn't notice exactly the difference there until I read it a few more times. Noticing then that, the, that there's a difference. You, you probably pick up on it already. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. That's a declarative statement. This is what is... What is happening? My soul is waiting in silence. But then verse 5, what does he do? For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. So he's changed from a declarative statement, what is the case, to an imperative statement, what ought to be the case. What he ought to be doing. He's talking to himself here, right? Right. Back up in verse 1, he says, this is what's going on. And now in verse 5, he says, for God alone, oh, my soul, wait in silence. And I think that's interesting because there will be times where you think, man, my heart is at peace. I'm going through hard times and I am just resting in the Lord and it feels so great. And then there will be other times where similar things are happening. And you say to yourself, oh, soul rest in peace see the former is man i'm at peace my soul is at peace and the latter is come on man be at peace get yourself together rest in peace wait in silence <coughs> i think that's what he's doing here for god oh my soul wait in silence for my hope is from him. So a change of tone from verse 1 to verse 5. Confidence in verse 1, maybe a little hesitation in verse 5. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's pretty interesting just the way he changes. At the end of verse 5, for my hope is from him. He changes from salvation in verse 1 to hope in verse 5. He only is my rock and my salvation, identical to verse 2. And um, my, my fortress, I shall not be shaken, in verse 2 he said, I shall not be greatly shaken, so he takes out the adverb there. So it's just fascinating to read these really, really closely and to see the slight changes that you don't read. You know, if you're just reading Psalm 62 and then you read on to Psalm 63 and then you're trying to get through, you know, five psalms today, some things you don't notice. So there's an advantage to, I don't know how you do your Bible study, but there's an advantage to say, okay, I'm going to read Psalm 62 today, I'm going to read it 10 times. And... At some point, I guarantee you, if you'll do that, at some point in that 10-time reading of Psalm 62, something's going to jump out at you that you've never in your life noticed before. And you'll remember it better if you find it yourself rather than somebody telling it to you in a sermon or in a commentary. You'll forget it. So it's just a way, it's interesting the way he progresses. <clears throat> and so he then he says in verse 7, back to, um, back to a declarative statement. So he's talked to himself, verse 5. Verse 6, then verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is in God. Again, statements of confidence. And then he says in verse 8, trust in him at all times. Then he directs his his words to the people, whoever the people are, the assembly of the righteous, the assembly of worshipers. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I like that expression, pour out your heart before him. We, We use that, you know, oh, just pour out your heart but probably don't think about what that means. A couple of other places. Uh, in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah, mother of Samuel. She would become the mother of Samuel. It says that Hannah, or Hannah says, that she poured out her heart to the Lord. And then there's another way that this expression, a similar expression is used. Remember Hezekiah was in Jerusalem and the city was surrounded by the Assyrians, most powerful nation, most powerful army in the world. Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrians and the Assyrians were mocking them. They were just, telling, you know, you don't have a chance, just give up uh, because there, I think there were 185,000 of them out there and Jerusalem didn't have anywhere to go. You know, they're hemmed in. And they sent a letter in. This letter is mocking God, making fun of God, making fun of Hezekiah and all that. And, uh, and it's interesting because Hezekiah takes that letter and he lays it out in front of the Lord. He takes that letter and he lays it out in front of the Lord. And says, Lord, you see, see what they're saying about you? This is what they're saying about you, Lord. So he, so he puts it out there. And, and this, that, kinda, that kind of um, image is what comes out of verse 8. Is He says to the people, pour out your heart. That's kind of a cliche. We don't really think about what it means. But what it means basically is, Lord, I'm bearing my whole soul and heart, everything. I'm, I'm laying this letter out. And I'm saying, Lord, look at this. This is a mess. Or, or look at this, Lord. Look at, look at this heart. Look at this life. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it out there, you know, right at your feet. I don't know what to do with it, but you do. So I don't know. Beautiful, beautiful language. All right, last section quickly. It goes back to those people who are causing problems. Those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up, they're together lighter than their breath. I think he's talking about their wealth there. Uh, Their their wealth is lighter than... How much does a breath weigh? You ever tried to weigh a breath? However light a breath is, wealth is even lighter than that. Put no trust in extortion. That's how uh, some people get wealth. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And then this great conclusion, once God has spoken... Twice I have heard this. This is why we have confidence. And we'll close here. That power belongs to God. Two things. That to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Remember I talking about this before? Translated steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy. Um, sometimes it's love, but it's this Old Testament word that permeates the text talking about God's covenant faithfulness. That's the idea. That to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You love us when we're doing right. You love us when we're doing wrong. It's constant. It's steady. God's God's covenant love. He's always faithful to the covenant. He's a promise-keeping God. That's what that word means. So that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. That's why... When it seems like the enemies are ganging up, when they're saying all sorts of bad things, when the battering rams are pounding the walls of the city and you wonder how much longer the walls can stand, when your heart is being beset by temptation or by trial or whatever, how can you say, my trust is in him only? Because you know he's a God of steadfast love. He doesn't waver. And he will render to a man according to his work. These people with the battering rams, these people who are speaking flattery and they're, uh, they're cursing, beneath their breath these people God knows look at the letter that uh, Sennacherib king of Assyria Hezekiah said Lord look at the letter that he sent and look what he says about you God will render to a man according to his work pour it out before the Lord he's a God of steadfast faithfulness and he's a God who does the right thing always and he will not let his enemies go unpunished ultimately And that's why we can say, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. If you're not a Christian tonight, we invite you to come to put your faith in that God and the revelation of him in Jesus Christ who showed us God, who showed us covenant faithfulness, who keeps the promises, who keeps the covenant and wants you to come to faith in him this very evening. Express that faith in baptism. We would love to be a part of that with you. Uh, If you need to come back to him because you haven't been faithful to the covenant, you haven't been faithful to the covenant-keeping God, uh, then why don't you make things right with him, between you and him, maybe. Or if it's something we can help you with, let us know as well. Let's stand and sing this song. If you need to respond, please come.